Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. That's our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 11, 1 to 4. And our sermon passage is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. There's a, there's a loose tie-in to last week's sermon uh, regarding the Lord's anointed. And so that's why I chose this passage and this sermon for today. So again, our scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And our sermon passage is John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. And so I, I call you to give your full attention to it as it's being read. Isaiah 11, 1 to 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor." And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now turning, if you will, to John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment and made from from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. This ends the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we've heard your word read, and now we are to hear it declared. Give us ears to hear, dear Lord, even the one who preaches, give him ears to hear. We pray that you would give our hearts a disposition that is subservient to your word. We pray that you would give us humility and a desire to sit under your word as it is both read and preached. So please, O Lord, guide us by your Spirit and help us to worship you now through the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For a moment, I want you to engage with me in a thought experiment. I want you to use your imaginations. And I will warn you that this might be somewhat painful, but I think it will be useful. 
Most of us have lost loved ones to death. Some of us fairly recently. Now I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine if you could have that person back with you. Imagine your spouse or your father or your mother. Imagine if you've lost a child, if you could have your child back or your sister or your brother. Imagine if you could have someone who was a friend to you like they were family. Imagine this. Think about this. Just put yourselves there for a moment. What if they came back to you from the dead? What if they were brought back to life? Think about that. Let the joy of that image of their resurrection fill you for a moment. You are now empathizing with the joy that Mary and Martha and the rest of their family felt when they got their beloved brother Lazarus back from the dead. Remember this, he had been in the grave for four days. The stench of death filled that tomb. And you can only imagine when the stone was moved away at Jesus' command, what would have come out of it. To put it into language that we can better understand, Lazarus was in the casket, which was in a vault, which was in the ground, and it had been there for four days, and it's as if Jesus is commanding for all of that to be dug up and the casket to be brought out. There was no way that Lazarus was coming back to them as far as Martha and Mary and the rest of the family were concerned. But Jesus, God in the flesh, called to Lazarus and commanded him to come back to life. And you know the rest of the story. He did. Now again, imagine how you would feel if your loved one was brought back to life after four days in the ground. Think about this, popular culture, books, movies, they they are obsessed with the idea of loved ones coming back, coming back to life. Would you want to celebrate? Of course you would. You would rejoice that this person whose death you had mourned, about whom you had shared countless tears, was back with you. And that is exactly what is described in our chapter. Because in our chapter, Jesus has come back to Bethany after he'd been away. He's come back where Martha and Mary and Lazarus are. And they had a feast. I want you to consider this as we make our way through the sermon today. The Messiah, God's anointed, receives a royal anointing that is fit for a king who will be enthroned on a cross for the sins of his people. The Messiah, God's anointed, receives a royal anointing that is fit for a king who will be enthroned on a cross for the sins of his people. The sermon is a two-pointer. The first, a joyous celebration. The second, lavish humility. Again, the first point, a joyous celebration. The second, lavish humility. So let's look at this joyous celebration a little bit. You probably remember, it's a very well-known passage that in chapter 11, Jesus heard from Lazarus' sisters that Lazarus was deathly ill. They called for him Uh, wherever he was, to come to Bethany. And Jesus waited. And so before he 
went to Bethany from where he was. It was about a two-day journey, apparently, because he waited two days. Before he left the place where he was staying, Lazarus died. Jesus went to Bethany, where Lazarus and his sisters lived. And when he got there, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. So he must have died the day that Jesus got word. He'd been in the tomb for four days. And chapter 11 contains the shortest and one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, verse 38. When Jesus got to the tomb, we read there, Jesus wept. Well, immediately Jesus commands that the stone be rolled away from the tomb. And he commands that Lazarus rise up and walk out. And after Jesus did that, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, we read there in chapter 11 that many believed in him. There were a lot of people. They were witnesses. They saw this. And they, as a result of seeing what Jesus had done, they believed in him. But there were some, we read there in chapter 11, who went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. And what was the reaction of those Pharisees? He just brought a dead man back to life with many, many eyewitnesses. And what do the Pharisees do? They rage. They plot. They desire to kill Jesus even more. And so Jesus leaves Bethany. Bethany's not too far from Jerusalem. About two miles east of Jerusalem. The Pharisees get word. They want to kill Jesus. Of course, the high priest says, hold on. It's better that one be sacrificed for the nation. Those kinds of things. But the plot is is very thick here. And so Jesus, he moves away from this area, the immediate area surrounding Jerusalem. He goes to Ephraim, which was about 12 miles from Jerusalem. And he stayed there for an unspecified period of time, but it was possibly as long as two to three months. The dust that had been kicked up settles down, and he remained there up to the time of the Passover, which, as you are aware, is his final Passover. And it's the setting, of course, for his crucifixion. Well, because Jesus had 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 to leave fairly quickly after Lazarus' resurrection, because he had been away for possibly a few months following the resurrection of Lazarus, when he returns in advance of the Passover, Martha and Mary and Lazarus want to have a feast in gratitude for his raising Lazarus from the dead. They want to celebrate the fact that Jesus brought Lazarus back to them. And so, as John says in verse 1 of chapter 12, our passage this morning, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, Jesus' return to Bethany would have been on the Saturday evening before Jesus' crucifixion the following Friday. Okay? Just to give you the time stamp there. The next day is Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday. What happens then? Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as chapter 11, verse 55 tells us, many people were streaming already into Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They've already been coming in to purify themselves. They've got to be ritually pure before they can celebrate the Passover. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem uh, uh, right away. He goes to Bethany. Why? Because he doesn't need to purify himself. That's why he stayed in Ephraim. That's why he didn't go to Jerusalem early. But just a couple of days before, or a few days before the festival begins, the Passover festival, Jesus returns very close to Jerusalem in Bethany in in advance of the Passover. Now, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was already very close with 
the friends and family of Lazarus. They were close friends of his. But imagine how much more now. I mean, think about this. How grateful are you to doctors, to to nurses, to, to people who have intervened and possibly saved a loved one's life, just giving you some medicine that makes you feel better? We're... Imagine now how grateful they were, how much more they loved Jesus, because they, he, he literally brought Lazarus back to life. This family had a great, deep, abiding affection for Jesus, a love that would not be diminished. And so they have a feast in Jesus' honor as a token for the gratitude and the love that they feel for him. And verse 2 says that they gave him a dinner there in Bethany, and at the dinner Martha served Martha That's what she does. She serves. She's doing it again. And Lazarus was one of the people who reclined with Jesus at the table. And so it's at this celebratory feast that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anoints Jesus' feet. And that leads us to the second point, the final point of the sermon. Good news, we're almost done. Lavish humility. Verse 3 says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now Mary, you remember, was the one who in Luke chapter 10 sat at at Jesus' feet while he taught. And of course Martha was serving. She was busying herself. That's what she did. We, We have Marthas in this church. You know who they are. They serve. But Mary, she wanted to sit there. One wasn't necessarily worse or better than the other. Jesus commended Mary because he said she had chosen the good portion, which would not be taken away from her. But from that first encounter that Jesus had with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, Mary became a devoted follower of Jesus. But what drove her devotion even deeper was the miraculous resurrection of her beloved brother Lazarus. In her wildest dreams, she could not have imagined that Jesus could do that. She says... Well, to know that you can do whatever you want. But then he says, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. She doesn't believe that he's about to, Martha doesn't believe he's about to bring Lazarus back from the dead. She thinks he's going to be raised on the last day. Mary maybe believes it's possible. It's hard to tell from the passage in, in John chapter 11. And that miracle not only brought her brother back, but it confirmed for Mary, for Martha too, I believe, for the rest of the people who were witnesses, it confirmed to them that Jesus was indeed God in the flesh. How do I know this? How do I know that for Mary this brought her or confirmed to her the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh? We don't actually read anywhere in the biblical accounts of a public profession of faith on the part of Mary like we do on the part of Martha in chapter 11, verse 27. And yet the devotion that Mary shows to Jesus when he anoints his feet is a demonstration of her faith in him. We, we say that, that, that faith, it necessarily has fruits, right? That faith, true saving faith, bears fruit. It's not the, not the fruit that saves, but it's the natural byproduct of true and saving faith. And, and, and those, those fruits, of course, are good works. The significance of this, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. It's a, it's a demonstration of this faith that she's got in him. And the significance of the perfume that she used might be lost in some of us, but it's not lost on Judas Iscariot. 
Now, he seems to be a dealer in black market goods. He understands what's going on. He's a thief, John describes him. Verses 4 and, 7, 4 and 5 say, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Of course Judas would know how much it would be worth. Right? He's got an eye for those kinds of things. Now, the amount of perfume that's described in the ESV as a pound some of your Bibles might have a footnote there that says Greek litra. And it goes on to say that a Roman litra was equal to about 11 and a half ounces. So it was a several, several ounces less than what we would call a pound of weight today. But, but it's still a large quantity of ointment. What are your perfume bottles that you've got sitting on your, uh, on your countertop in your bathroom? How much do they hold? A couple of ounces maybe? And can you imagine what, what, would, what it would be like if you dumped that out? Just... One or two ounces out? It's a pound of what John describes as pure nard. And according to one commentator, nard refers to spike nard. It's a fragrant oil from the root of the nard plant of the mountains of northern India. In the Mediterranean world, eastern nard remained the fare of the well-to-do. That's what one commentator says. Now, it may be that Mary's family was wealthy, as we saw in chapter 11, when Lazarus had died, many people traveled from Jerusalem to Bethany to visit the family in mourning. It may be that they were wealthy. Maybe that they were a prominent, well-known family in the area. It may also be that it, they weren't any longer so wealthy, but that this bottle of pure nard, it was a family heirloom passed down uh, to gener generation after generation until Mary found an appropriate use for something so valuable. Think about that. That's possible. Scripture doesn't teach us that, but it's possible. It was very valuable. If Judas, if he was accurate in his appraisal of the value, 300 denarii, that's a, that's a year's worth of work. One denarii equaled a day's worth of labor. So 300 days, if you take out all of the feasts, the festivals, Sabbaths, all of those things, that's a, year's, that's a year of work, of working days for a Jewish person. Think about that. We think of inflation. How much for our, for our seasoned saints? How much did a, a bag, a loaf of bread cost you uh, when you were young? Right? Now I don't know how much they are. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, but it's, it's up quite a bit, right? How much did our grandparents make? What was their annual salary? How much is yours today? Think about that. A year's worth of salary. Think about your salary. If you had something that was worth that in liquid form, I'm sure there are some... Uh, some types of scotch that might approach that, or some bottles of wine that were found in the Titanic that might approach that for, for some people, even the wealthiest of people. Would you dump it out on the feet of someone and anoint them with, with that? Would you do it? Now, Judas, he says that they could have taken the nard, they could have sold it for 300 denarii, they could have given that to the poor but even though his concern for the poor is disingenuous, his appraisal is probably accurate. Think about this. Maybe Mary's family was wealthy. What if they weren't? 
What if this was all they had? What if this was the last vestige of a wealthy family that had sort of lost their wealth over time? I remember reading a a report at one point talking about that that inherited wealth, that people don't really keep it. If if you're born into wealth, that often uh, the person who made all of the money within two or three generations, it's all gone in most cases. And so that could be the case with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Think about that. Because it's very likely that this once prominent family had fallen on hard times under the Roman occupation. And so, was it a waste? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. It would have been a waste of, uh, of something so valuable if it had been poured out on anyone but Jesus Christ. But you see, that, that's why I think that this is a profession of faith on her part. It says something about how Mary understood who Jesus was. Now, she could not have guessed that in less than a week he would be hanged on a cross as a common criminal and die. But she understood what Martha had articulated earlier, right after Jesus came, when Lazarus had died, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, who was coming into the world. And she gives expression to that understanding in anointing Jesus' feet with such a precious, valuable substance. And so, as we've already said, though we don't have a record of Mary having said these words, this passage makes it, I think, very clear that she had the same understanding as her sister. If she had not known that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, she would never have parted with such precious perfume. But think about this as well. What is the significance? She could have simply given him the bottle. She could have said, here, I'm going to donate this to your ministry. You can sell it. You can use the proceeds to to, to support your ministry. She could have done that, but what does she do? She pours it out. She anoints him. She understood that Jesus was God's anointed, which is what Christ or Messiah means. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. Hebrew kings, we know this pretty well, don't we, from our time in 1 Samuel. Hebrew kings were referred to as the Lord's anointed. And with regard to kings, anointing involves God's blessing, God's preservation. How many times have we seen that? And how many more times are we going to see that in 1 Samuel? David, who had been anointed as king, even while Saul was still enthroned, would not lay a hand on Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. And even though from the, the passage from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, which we read as our scripture reading, it doesn't use the word anointed or Moshiach. It gives a picture of how the Messiah is anointed. We read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Lord's anointed, the Messiah, has the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him in a way that is unlike anyone else. Now, Christians, we can say, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, but we are not anointed with uh, with the Spirit in the same way that Jesus was. We're not anointed as a king or a prophet or a priest, not in the way that Jesus was. So I believe that we can say with confidence that Mary recognized Jesus as the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, and she gave to him what was most precious to her family, and it was a fitting 
gift. Because it was oil with which she anointed him. It was a lavish gift. It was over and above what most people would have thought was called for. And yet, how did she do it? Remember, think about this. They're reclining at table. Lazarus is beside Jesus. This is the way they used to eat. It's hard to imagine. Some of our children occasionally try to recline at table and they fall off their chairs. They were reclining at table on, on sort of like a couch, a sofa type thing, more of a, a sort of a platform. Where were their heads? Their heads were toward the table. Where were their feet? Their feet are away from the table. We'll get into why that is in a few moments. Mary doesn't come. She doesn't presume to anoint her king's head. She anoints his feet with this perfume. Twelve ounces of liquid, as we've said, it would go a long way. But John has chosen by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit to emphasize because there are some accounts that Mary anointed his head. John goes on to, he emphasizes how Mary anointed Jesus' feet with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Why would John do this? Well, for one thing, it's a demonstration of her servant-like mentality. In John 13, Jesus will wash his disciples' feet. And the significance of these two events is, is very similar. Feet in those days were filthy. This is why they sat with their feet away from the table. Now, people today have stinky feet. I remember when... Uh, I was in the Marines uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, we had a chance to go to the Vatican. We had a chance to go to the, uh, the Sistine Chapel and visit it. You know, there's a question in one of those movies, do you know what the Sistine Chapel smells like? Some of you may get the reference. You may remember what it's from. Do you know what it smells like? You've only read about it in books. And I remember one of my buddies in the Marines, he said, yeah, now I know what the Sistine Chapel smells like. It smells like stinky feet. Because of the, the thousands and thousands of people that would go through this what, relatively small chapel in order to see uh, what the artwork on the ceiling. Feet in our day are stinky. Feet in Jesus' day were grotesque. They were disgusting. Jesus himself would have worn sandals just like anybody else because he was the, the beloved eternally begotten Son of God in human form. He, he did not put himself above anybody else. His feet would have had on them because he wore sandals and he walked around in the dust of the earth. His feet would have had dust. His feet would have had urine. His feet would have had excrement, animal and human. And who knows what else his feet would have had on them. That's why when he washes his disciples' feet, it's so significant. He's washing all of that off. And it, and it symbolizes what's going to happen. The washing of, of the blood uh, with, their, with their sin. Now, given this, keeping this in mind, and the probability that Jesus' feet weren't very clean, this is not something that you, upon which you would want to pour out your most valuable possession, much less touch with your hands or wipe with your hair. Mary did not consider herself to be above doing this in order to show honor to her Lord, to her Messiah. 
She did not grasp at superiority or even equality. She considered herself to be the servant of the Messiah. And so in humility, she made foul feet fragrant. So much so that John says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Brothers and sisters, this is servanthood. Are we above such things? Love for Jesus Christ means that we do things for His sake that we otherwise never would do. Mary showed that she was Jesus' servant by anointing His feet with this precious perfume. And it was a fittingly humble act of service for the one who, as the King of the Jews, would be enthroned. Not in a palace, but on a cross. Jesus is the King who was willing to get Himself dirty for the sake of saving his people, both literally and figuratively. As the only begotten son of the Father, he had existed from all eternity in in an estate of utter purity. And yet when he added to his divinity human flesh, a human nature, he lived not as a king in a palatial palace, but in the dirt and filth of the common man. His feet with their accumulated vile filth are symbolic of the filth of our sins imputed to Him on the cross. You see, as bad as the stench of a filthy house might be, filthy feet, filthy clothes. I grew up on a dairy farm. (laughs) I understand the filth of excrement in, in a fairly intimate way. As filthy as all of these things are, they are nothing compared to the stench of your and my sins. And that is what Jesus took upon himself on the cross. What is more amazing than Jesus being willing to live the life of a common man with all of its filth encrustedness was the fact that he was willing to take on the filth of your and my sins and of all of his people's sins and die because of that. Die because of those sins. And Mary, though she didn't understand that he was going to die in a very short time, she seems to have understood something of her own sin so that the filth of Jesus' feet didn't bother her. She was aware of her own humanity and her own humility. She was aware of her own lowness, her own sin, I think we can say. And when we properly understand our own sin, we tend to focus less on the sins of other people. And focus more on our Savior, who can save us from our sins. And think about this. Consider this. There was one person in that room to whom Mary's act of service was odious. Judas. It wasn't a criticism of Jesus. It wasn't a criticism of the disciples. He criticized her. What did he say? He said, we could have sold this perfume. We could have given the money to the poor. He sounds so righteous. John explains in verse 6 that he only said these things because he was a thief. And he used to help himself to the contents of the money bag. Jesus rightly and fittingly and thankfully rebukes Judas. He tells Judas to leave Mary alone. 
He says that the perfume was intended for Jesus' burial. She is preparing him, though she didn't realize it at the time. She's preparing him for burial. It was an early preparation for his entombment. Jesus' final statement in our passage in verse 8 is not intended to be taken that they or we shouldn't be concerned for the poor. It's simply that, more, that even more important than taking care of the poor is giving honor to God. I think that's an important thing for us to consider as we, as we close things up today. In many ways, the church has lost her way. The church absolutely serves in a certain sense and in a, in a civil way. We help one another. We try to be good neighbors, right? The Bible commands us to, to never withhold a glass of cold water to someone in need. But for many today, that's the only purpose of the church. The only purpose of the church is for, uh, to help out with, with social needs. But sadly for Ju- Judas, he was simply using concern for the poor as a smokescreen to hide his true motives. But as D.A. Carson wisely writes, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, which is the way that Judas was behaving, It must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. Social activism, whatever whatever shape, and there is some ugly social activism that's going on by the church today. There's some good we try to do as well, real and genuine good. But if that social, social activism is the driving force of the church, if that's the reason the church exists, it's lost its way, brothers and sisters. Why? Because first and foremost, God has called us to worship Him. First and foremost. And so we, we can't become the church, even, even the good things and the good causes that we support as a congregation, the good things that are, that are, that are of paramount importance to us regarding society. We cannot become, for instance, the church that opposes abortion. The church. That's the only thing we're about. Even though our church does oppose abortion, even though we do take steps to promote uh, the, the, the uh, pro-life position, we... we, we want to promote, we seek to promote, we, we uh, emphasize a culture of life over the culture of death in which we live. But that can't be our primary focus. And other churches emphasize and focus on other things. So, sure, seek to take care of the poor. But don't, don't let your activism for the poor trump your duty as a follower of Christ to give honor and worship to God. You will always have the poor with you. But if you refuse to worship the living and true God while you have life and breath, all your service to the poor will do nothing for you on the day of judgment. And so, brothers and sisters, this passage, it calls you to worship at the feet of Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, whose enthronement was being hung on a cross because he carried your and my filthy sins and the sins of everyone who trusts in him. And that is good news. That is the good news, the news that we need to hear. And that is why we as a church exist, to proclaim the good news, which is in itself 
worshiping the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have given us this glorious task of proclaiming your wonderful work of salvation, your mighty works, and that you've given us this duty to do so before the nations in front of all people and to call sinners to repentance and faith. Would help us as a church in particular, help us as a denomination, and help your church worldwide to never lose our focus on what is our highest calling to worship you and to call worshipers to worship you. Would help us to humbly serve you primarily in worship. Let everything that we do be an act of worship to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.